You are listening to South by Southwest Sessions. Well, this is fun. Uh, thank you. It's great to see so many familiar faces in the audience, and I know there are a lot on video. And Michael, what a pleasure. What a great pleasure. to be with you, Jim, and uh, great to see uh, a great audience today. Terrific. Well, I thought we would start with Austin, Texas, and then we'll move to a number of ranging topics from AI, medicine, the Dell journey, advice to the 25-year-old self that you would provide today. And for those of you who have not read the book, and I would imagine there are very few, uh, I thought it was simply exceptional, having known Michael for 15-plus years, uh, the journey, the courage, the advice to young entrepreneurs, I think, is really exceptional. Uh, so we'll get to that as well. But let's start with Austin, Texas. You came here as a student. You ran a business uh, that became quite large, 100 billion in revenue. Congratulations. Thank you. Out of your dorm room to start. Tell us about the Austin journey and your thoughts about where we are today in Austin and where you think we're going. Well, um, yeah, Austin had uh, a couple of hundred thousand people when when I when I first showed up here as a freshman uh, in 1983. Uh, I think you know we're up to 2.2 million or something like that now. There was actually a period where the city uh, discouraged growth, and I think that. Uh, you know, there was a lot of sort of pent-up demand for Austin to grow. And so, you know, what causes a place to grow, right? right. <laughs> or what causes a city like Austin to be created? Well, I think, uh, you know, first of all, um, you need a, a great university or several great universities. And uh, I believe there's something like 400,000 students within a 100-mile radius of where we are right now, which is kind of amazing, right? Um, and young people have to want to live there. Right. Uh, you know, that seems to me to be the, the magic combination. And um, yeah, Austin's been great. I think it's going to keep growing. It's, it's been roughly doubling in size every decade. And what's also really interesting is if you look at all these towns around the periphery, um, I was in uh, Buda, Texas yesterday, you know, but if you think about, you know, Kyle and Pflugerville and all these all these towns, go back, go look, they're all growing at double-digit rates compounded each year. So, um, and, 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 and obviously you, you get a bit of a hub effect, network effects in terms of tech companies, and there were tech companies in Austin way before, you know, I showed up, right? You know, it was IBM in the 60s, and AMD and Motorola, um, and of course now you have a blossoming ecosystem of new companies that you're funding, and and uh, and you you've got uh, all, all the elements that I think will continue to make Austin's future very bright. What are your concerns regarding the next ten years in Austin? Obviously, there are challenges. Uh, there are significant challenges in some of our great cities, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles. 
How do you see the challenges in Austin over the next 10 years? Well, I think uh, homelessness, yeah. uh, affordable housing, those two kind of go together, uh, transportation, um, you know, the, the, those are probably the, the, the top of mind ones. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Community First Village. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, this is really an amazing place. Uh, my wife and I were just, just there a few days ago to, to checking out the progress. And uh, yeah, I think, I think um, uh, the, the, those are, those are the, the, the top of mind issues. Uh, you know, affordable housing, I mean, real estate has gone bananas. That makes it very hard for, for many people to, to be able to live uh, in, in the area. Of course, you know, oil prices are going up, right? Uh, good time to have an electric car, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, what do you see, Jim? You're, 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 you've been here a couple of years now, and, but, but, you, but you had been coming here quite a, quite a lot, you know, when, when you were on the Dell board and for other activities. How, how, how have you seen the city evolve? What, what do you see as, as the challenges? Well, I'll start with uh, what you described as the reason great talent continues to come to Austin. Uh, a great university, which is on the rise in many ways and sits at the heart of so much of what is important from a venture capital standpoint, which is interdisciplinary investing. So this idea, and we'll get into it, of computation and medicine, computation, the life sciences, what quantum technologies, the great physicists here and chemists and biologists, what they're going to be able to do with these radically improved computation rates. Austin, in many ways, sits at a hub where that kind of interdisciplinary thinking can occur. Uh, I love our I'm fortunate to be a trustee at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and SF MoMA. The burgeoning art scene in Austin is incredible. And we all know about the music scene. And we're hopefully post-COVID now, so all of that starts to come back. Uh, the other piece that doesn't get reported enough, I think, on the two coasts uh, is the integration of Austin with what's excellent in Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, these city hubs. Uh, we have a wonderful Dell Alumni Association, by the way, uh, and Ross Perot and Tom Luce are, are two great friends, and what they talk about is the importance of the Dallas hospitals, obviously in Houston. We have one of the great cancer centers in the world, MD Anderson and the opportunity to integrate that into what is special about Austin and a certain startup medical school, Dell Medical School, uh, is really exciting. So for all those reasons, uh, I'm very optimistic long-term. Uh, there is so much talent here uh, in and around Austin. There's a lot of talent coming, as we know, from Today, just in the couple discussions informally we had, the people from Los Angeles and the Bay Area, New York and elsewhere, Chicago, uh, is really astounding. And so it's a really exciting time. And 
Briar Capital's made now over 20 investments in Austin. I expect that to fully double over the next two years in many of the areas that we discussed. So it's a super exciting time to, to be here. And I'm also thankful because uh, one other characteristic of Austin that we should never forget about, and you emphasize it in your book, and it's part of the Dell culture, uh, you can play nice and win. And so in many parts of Silicon Valley and Seattle and Boston, uh, it's a winner-take-all view. And there's tremendous innovation, uh, and that will continue. But in Austin, uh, companies cooperate, entrepreneurs are seed investing other entrepreneurs. There's a mutual win-win culture that today is very unique, uh, in my view, based on world opportunities around innovation, entrepreneurship, venture capital, and I, I think that's going to serve the community uh, and, and the state well as we think about the next decade. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, kind of watching the entrepreneurial community here, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how much it has kind of taken off and accelerated over the last, you know, five to ten years, but I would say particularly the last maybe three to four years uh, with the whole ecosystem of, of support, you know, world-renowned venture capitalists like yourself, you know, moving to Austin, you know, uh, make, make a big uh, difference in that. Uh, but, um, yeah, there, there, there's kind of this, this uh, network effect and ecosystem effect that, that takes hold, and it's, it's exciting to see. It is. And the, the other piece of it, I, I see many familiar faces in the audience, Bob Metcalf, Josh Baer, others, uh, the seed investing uh, that is occurring in Austin, and we all know it takes four or five years to really recognize how fundamental seed investing uh, might become, is extraordinary. And so that is something that I think, again, is very exciting because there's this force we hear in the Bay Area about the PayPal mafia. Well, let me tell you, the Dell alumni mafia is second to none. <laughs> And they also provide incredible mentorship to a lot of the entrepreneurs. So that's another characteristic of the Dell culture, which I think uh, you should be very, very proud of. Thank you. Michael, let's talk a little bit about your advice to entrepreneurs, the 25-year-olds. And if you had a chance to reflect and write that letter to your 25-year-old self, uh, you have a really terrific son, Zach, who's in the venture capital business. Uh, you should be very proud, and I'm proud. They're two sons, uh, Ted Breyer and Daniel Breyer, who are in the audience, who are exceptional and doing great work in consumer investing and crypto and a number of other fields. What's your advice to the 25-year-old entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, uh, as you think about what you've learned uh, and how you think about capitalizing and doing good in many ways over the next decade or two? Well, I kind of start with, you know, uh, asking Zach to explain this whole crypto thing. To me, <laughs> I know we're going to get to, and, and, and I want to hear you talk about that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I was more patient. You know, I, I, I wish I had done more planning. I, I wish I had thought about how we, you know, would grow and evolve our team over time. Uh, I wish I 
was a better listener. Um, and, you know, it's kind of things you, you learn by making mistakes and with time and, and age. Um, but we were once young Turks. <laughs> uh, Michael's still a young Turk, but uh, it's, it's remarkable as we've reflected over many years on the journey. Yeah, uh, I, I, was, I, wasn't very, I wasn't very patient. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, for, we've both seen a lot of people that have you know, started businesses and, and uh, some of them have been very successful, right? <laughs> not all of them. I mean, uh, I think there's, the, they're, they're definitely not all the same. You know, each one of them have, you know, is a little different in their own characteristics. Kind of what's worked for me is the curiosity, learning, listening, embracing risk, uh, trying to stay pretty humble, and, um, you know, uh, thinking about problems from a new perspective, and... Um, Thinking about how how we can how we can uh, you know uh, actually do something that is that is super important and super valuable for our customers and for you know the people we're serving. Are there certain industries or fields when you're thinking about the next ten or twenty years? for entrepreneurs in the audience, venture capitalists. Uh, you know, I go back to The Graduate, one of my favorite movies of all time, and there are pithy quotes about what the next decade of opportunities might look like, and uh, we've all experienced that. There are trends that are only trendy, but then there are some very fundamental trends. Are there areas where, from your point of view and what you see, both through philanthropy as well as through Dell, that you think over the next decade or two are the areas with the most significant upside in terms of both positive change and creation of shareholder value? Well, you know, what, what's interesting about technology is it's kind of been built in, in layers, right? And if you went back and you said, okay, you know, it's, it's the 1970s, what is technology, right? We're sort of at the beginning of semiconductors, right? And, and uh, what could you do with the semiconductors? Well, you could do a few things, but, you know, it wasn't obviously like, like it is now. And, uh, you know, then, then you sort of went into this age where, you know, you, you know, you could build microprocessors and you had systems and people were building things to store data, people were creating databases, right? And then, you know, you started to create more programming languages and more applications. And now what you see are new companies that are not doing really those things, right? They're, they're, they're applying all these layers of incredible technology across every industry and, and sector of society and the world you could imagine. And so I think the opportunity for pretty much everything in the world to be upended by AI is, is quite significant. Uh, certainly, and, and, and by the way, 
I say that in a, in a positive context. We, we both believe that, that, that uh, you know, the vast majority of this is going to be done in, in a positive context, though some people could do bad things with, with any tool. Uh, so I think healthcare, you've invested quite a bit in AI and healthcare. You know, education feels like, you know, there's starting to, starting to be some breakthroughs in, in technology uh, or the, the application of technology in, in education. Um, and, you know, those are, those are two areas that I think are ripe for innovation. I think the next 10 years, as we've talked about in healthcare, I think are going to be uh, a decade of tremendous progress. But I think every field uh, is, you know, if, if you're an existing company, you have to reimagine yourself in the context of all these super powerful technologies that are showing up and rapidly, you know, transform. And if you're, you know, trying to get in uh, those businesses, well, you have the attacker's advantage, right? <laughs> you, you, you can sort of say, hey, we don't have an, a, a legacy. We don't have all this stuff. What does the new thing look like? And, you know, you go, go create Stripe, right? You know, or, or, or other, other amazing companies because you've got a, you've got a clean slate. And, 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 of course, the... the, the you know, the new companies are increasingly in these vertical areas and, and, you know, where it's a specific domain and, you know, they're, they're not about, you know, okay, well, we figured out how to, you know, have bigger disk drives or something. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, those, those infrastructure layers are still important. The, the, you know, you have, to, you have to build things on something, right? But, but uh the, the, the amount of innovation, and if you look at sort of the roster of all the new companies, well, they're in, they're in all these new vertical areas. That's kind of how, you know, tell us about what you're, what you're funding at Briar Capital. What, what kind of interesting <laughs> companies are you seeing? Well, you know a number of them because we co-invest with Dell often, as well as your good friend Mark Benioff uh, at Salesforce, and... I think there are a couple of high-level themes. First of all, again, where computation intersects medicine and healthcare. Uh, when I'm speaking to students at Harvard and Stanford and UT and other great universities, uh, this is an area where I think we're literally not even on the first hole for those golfers in the audience. Uh, I was speaking to the outgoing CEO of Memorial Sloan Kettering, and today at MSK, about 5% of the professionals are in computation. And he thinks a decade from now, that number's 35 to 40%. And many of our top hospitals and medical schools see that happening as well. I was very fortunate to be on the Harvard Corporation Harvard's senior governing board, when we were recruiting for our dean of the medical school, uh, who turned out to be George Daly, who's spectacular, I probably was part of interviewing 25 to 30 candidates. Literally 1% or 2% would talk about computation, and this was six years ago. 
today with faculty recruitment, deans of potentially Dell Medical School and others, if you don't have a full understanding of how to bring computation in and break down the silos, which we talk often about, uh, you're just not going to be a great medical institution or a university, for that matter, a decade or two from now. And so many of the investment themes are where artificial intelligence and the beginnings now of quantum sensing and technologies impact drug discovery. It's re remarkable what is happening around drug discovery, molecular simulation, and I can't even imagine how to do drug discovery two or three years from now without these incredible tools that are out there. Yeah, well, th this is kind of the scientific method, you know, on, on, uh, on, on a scale that nobody has ever imagined. And, you know, you sort of start with the data, right? And uh, it turns out the amount of growth in data is tremendous, right? You've probably heard these stats like the amount of data in the world, you know, is doubling every eight months, then it's seven months, then it's, you know, six months. It just goes faster and faster. So nobody really wants data. What they want are improved outcomes, right, and, and results and, you know, uh, better health outcomes and uh, outcomes in, in all endeavors of life. And, and so, uh, and, and, and of course, if you think about what's happening, right, it used to be, you know, a computer was like a gazillion dollars. You had to have a special white coat to go there. Now computers are a dollar or a penny. They're, you know, there's intelligence in everything, and then you get these new networks like 5G and the coming 6G, where all the, everything in the physical world is now intelligent, they're all talking to each other, you have all this data. Humans can't make sense of all that, no chance. It has to be AI, machine learning, and again, this opportunity to kind of reimagine all aspects of everything that goes on in the world is tremendous. It doesn't happen automatically, by the way. It's not like you can just put the stuff together and out comes the answer. But um, you know, I think I think it's a it's a it's a super exciting time. There's never been a better time to be alive, even even with some of the horrific uh, crises that that we're dealing with. Absolutely. Uh, what I would also add for entrepreneurs. In particular, this intersection we touched on between universities and startups. There's always been some extraordinary opportunity that has emanated from many universities. There obviously are the famous stories of uh, Larry and Sergey leaving and starting Google with their computer science professor. But I've never seen this many opportunities again, in some of these areas like crypto, AI, and medicine, where there is extraordinary talent, 22, 25, 27-year-olds, and faculty that have to come together if the companies are going to succeed. Let's talk about crypto, because uh, you started investing in crypto when? In 2013. Okay, and you know something you mentioned, there has been this kind of enormous influx of remarkably talented people into this field. 
tell us what did you see and what have you been doing and sort of, you know, where do you think all this goes? Here, here, you know, this is, this, these are the questions I ask my son. You know, trying, trying <laughs> I'd to, like to have Zach to and Ted out. and Daniel up here <laughs> as we brainstorm. But in 2013, uh, a phenomenal entrepreneur I'd backed twice, and this is a continuing theme in the venture business, backing entrepreneurs two times, three times, four times, uh, Jeremy Allaire, uh, really had the insight that blockchain and Bitcoin uh, were going to be fundamental long-term. And he had a phenomenal partner. Uh, and so in May of 2013, uh, I wrote a Series A check uh, into Circle. Circle today is best known for its US dollar coin. Uh, and there's tremendous growth there. And not only that, but in this crazy world of international conflict, I think a lot of people are thinking through how do we make sure that the US dollar remains highly relevant in this world of crypto. And you can only have to look as far as US dollar coin growth and what's happening uh, that makes it far less full of friction in terms of payments, creators trying to get micropayments in terms of whether it's film, journalism, images. Uh, and in 2013, with my partners, I was very lucky as well to invest in the Series A of Coinbase, which is now a large public company. Uh, so we've done about 20 crypto investments since 2013, largely around blockchain infrastructure. So rarely will we make a big bet on a certain coin. Uh, but we will make big bets on what I would consider to be the genius 25 to 30 year olds who are at Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. And when I meet with them, they're looking for a couple things. They're looking for an ability to impact the world. They're looking for massive opportunity because they've been in some of these companies that have achieved great scale and mission-driven. And so when I ask them what they're going to do next, uh, because we have a pipeline of Briar Capital of about 100 of these individuals, they'll say crypto. They'll say AI and medicine. And they'll talk about sustainability. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me, sometimes venture capital can be very simple. Follow the absolute best and brightest. And the best and brightest today are moving into crypto, AI, and sustainability. And that is central to the Briar Capital Investment Thesis. We want to be able to call, uh, if it's AI medicine, a Nobel laureate or a potential Nobel laureate at Harvard or Stanford or UT who are the three or four best postdocs in your program? Mm -hmm. And that's how we intersect a lot of these opportunities. Uh, I would also say, though, that uh, we're in a real-time reset in terms of, we know, globalization. You know this far more than I. And so the challenges around global supply chain, the challenges around an increasingly fractious world as we speak, 
uh, does lead to, I think, far more complex strategies that need to be implemented. Uh, it's no longer thinking through how do we get to Europe in six months or 12 months. I think I'm starting to see an emphasis in Austin and Silicon Valley, Boston, New York, the best entrepreneurs thinking, for now, we want to create a social good, but at the same time, we're focused on the US for the foreseeable future given global risks. And I'd be interested in what you see, particularly around global supply chain. Uh, there's no one I've ever met <laughs> more insightful uh, than Michael when it comes to supply chain. I think there are a lot of people in the audience and on video who would love to hear what you're seeing real time relative to supply chain. Well, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the tension uh, actually goes back to about 2016 when there was uh, a certain uh, candidate, we won't get into that, but, but who, who uh, you know, the, the, there was a lot of increased discussion about tariffs. And, you know, that, that sort of, you know, uh, was, was a signal to us that, uh, all right, we, 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 need, we need to be thinking about our global supply chain a bit differently. Uh, then you had, obviously, COVID and, uh, and, and now, now you've got what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. All that is to say that, you know, supply chain, the, the, the movement has been from just in time to just in case and to be more resilient. And um, the other thing that happened during COVID was the only thing that worked was technology. And so technology was already on this upward slope, you know, as the optimists, uh, you know, would, would, would look at it. We're both optimists, and, and so say, we're not going to be balanced hey, in terms there's gonna of There's going to be more technology. Too. Everybody knows that. Well, now it's going up even faster. And so... Well, what do you need? You need semiconductors. We'll just go make some more, right? Uh, well, uh, it takes about three years to build a new semiconductor plant, and $10 billion, by the way. Um, and then it takes about a year for the plant to actually be producing at yield. So it's not like you could just stand these things up right away. It's an unbelievably complicated uh, set series of processes to, to build these things and, and the capital. And... And so good news is investments going in, uh, but the demand, you know, keeps going up. Um, and, you know, uh, you, you've, right now, for example, uh, you've also got uh, disruption in a lot of the rare earth metals, uh, you know, certainly commodity inflation uh, across many areas. And uh, freight, you know, ha has been, uh, you know, seriously impacted uh, because of the, 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 the COVID issues and, and uh, other logistical challenges. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of freight moves from Asia, specifically China, to Europe by rail. Go to Moscow. Yeah, go look on a map where, where the rail goes. You probably don't want your trains going, going through there right now. So uh, that means you put them on a boat, takes more time. Um, so, you know, supply chains need to be much more resilient. 
and also the, the product uh, design creation process has to be much more flexible so that you can take in multiple sources of supply and continue to, to, to meet the demand. Uh, and so, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a demand shock, uh, but it's also a, a supply shock. So both of them together. And what does that mean from where you sit relative to inflation? Neither of us is an economist, but certainly through my discussions with Doug McMillan at Walmart and a number of others, we're seeing potential significant inflation that's persistent. But I'd be curious to hear what you're seeing relative to inflation. I know there are a lot of countervailing trends. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was always kind of skeptical of inflation because, because technology is very deflationary and it continues to be. But when you look at the input costs, uh, you know, uh, certainly there's tremendous inflation and it doesn't appear like it's going to be going away. And then you get into, you know, government, you know, stimulus and all that, which obviously drives some measure of inflation. Uh, while that's changing a bit, doesn't seem to be slowing down too much. Um, so I, I think I think the inflation is going to be with us for for quite some time. Uh, I see it the same way, and it's remarkable. And I think again, when we're trying to advise partners, entrepreneurs, high stage growth companies. Uh, and three of them in, uh, in Austin, Everly Health and Zen Business, and uh, soon to be a couple others, are now well over a billion dollar market cap. But now these inflationary pressures uh, and the challenging times, I think, are going to reset growth. For instance, in many cases, we're adjusting down for the portfolio companies in these really interesting technology areas we're adjusting down the European growth by at least half this year. Well, and, and you know, the, the European economy is likely to be much more impacted by the you bet. horrible situation in, in Ukraine right now. Uh, certainly, you know, gas, energy costs, but also agriculture and, you know, the, the opportunity for that to uh, spiral into other problems, unfortunately, is 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 pretty high. So, so, you know, we tend to focus on what things can we control and, and uh, what can we actually do something about. We can't do a lot about all all those things, other than to try to try to man, manage around them. You bet. Although for the startups in the audience and the seed entrepreneurs and uh, those with growth stage as many of the portfolio companies of Briar Capital here, uh, dialing back cash burn rate right now makes a lot of sense. If I have to take a macro view, that's going to be one of the significant challenges because part of, as you know, Michael, being a great entrepreneur is optimism, courage, changing the world. It doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with we have to keep costs under significant control to live another day, or more importantly, to invest and prioritize in what really matters. Yeah, you've got to have a healthy dose of realism and, and, and make adjustments along the way. And this is definitely one of those times 
uh, where you know the, the world the world's adjusting. So one of the most exciting things that I've seen coming back to Austin, we see it in other geographies to some extent, would be these innovation zones. And what I tell my very good friends in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, the life sciences, of course, in Cambridge are exceptional. But MIT and Harvard didn't directly participate in the real estate and the wet labs to the extent that was possible. There's an exciting build out in Alston, Massachusetts, where Harvard is very active. Uh, in Austin right now, there is tremendous discussion and a tremendous opportunity around a number of different innovation zones. Uh, as Michael Dell, an advisor to what might be a Dell Medical Innovation Zone here in Austin, what advice would you give our real estate developers, our university, our entrepreneurs, as they think about co-locating or locating uh, around a Dell Medical Innovation Zone? And do you fundamentally believe it's a huge opportunity, or do you believe entrepreneurs are better served by Again, small offices off the beaten path, or dorm rooms for that instance. <laughs> yeah, you got you to have the dorm room. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, look, I think, I think the, the opportunity, as you talked about, for a multidisciplinary, uh, uh, for multi multidisciplinary innovations with research universities and you know, uh, health-related health startups, medical schools. And again, you get these network effects where you attract the best researchers and, uh, you know, teams that want to be involved in that work. I think there's a real opportunity for, for there to be a, a, a hub here of great innovation in, in healthcare. And of course, it does extend, uh, you know, to... The broader UT system and, and and Texas, you get MD Anderson in Houston, doing you know incredible work uh, in in cancer and uh, you know I think cancer is actually an area where I think the next ten years there's going to be tremendous breakthroughs and a lot of that will be driven by computational power and uh, you know the the intersection of the the computational sciences and the you know, life sciences. Um, and, and so that feels like a, a great area for a hub for new spinoffs, for new, you know, companies, you know, to, to be created. Well, we agree. Uh, so at Briar Capital, we're either opening an office or presences in some of these innovation zones, including Austin. Uh, I mentioned Cambridge for life sciences. Silicon Valley will never go away. Uh, I'm often asked, what's the difference between Silicon Valley and Austin? I could go on and on. But for deep breakthrough technologies, uh, advanced AI, uh, shortly Briar Capital will be announcing a quantum sensing and quantum technology spin out from a major technology company. Silicon Valley is unparalleled for the deep technologies. But what I love about Austin, doing something really on an interdisciplinary basis, 
I think will lead to real breakthroughs because there's just by nature more of an interdisciplinary feel in Austin today. And I mentioned it, one of the reasons I came to Austin and you were so instrumental, uh, not only the entrepreneurial and venture capital opportunities, but again, think of South by Southwest celebrating three decades, art, film, music, it's not enough to have a great technology hub. It's not enough to have great technologists uh, to get the best and brightest and the right set of interests and what makes, I think, all of us really excited is you need the artists, the musicians, the entrepreneurial food executives, the restaurants, and uh, it is really exciting here in Austin relative to that. Yeah, you know, and I think another thing that, that we saw with, with COVID was a more distributed future, right? Which we were probably headed toward anyway in some, in some way. Uh, but I think you're seeing, you know, talent being able to be engaged uh, in, a, in a remote and hybrid way, right? And I think that probably continues at some level. People love the flexibility and... While it's you know great to live in a in a in a wonderful city you know like Austin, well, you know there's there lots of talent all, all over the world, and so I think I think organizations are are figuring out how to how to you know create that that hybrid uh, you know engagement model uh, so that you know a, a broader more diverse universe of talent is is uh, able to be accessed, so you don't actually have to physically live in a, in a certain place to, you know, have, there are some jobs where, where that's required, right? But, but, but not all jobs. No, I agree. And one thing we've lost in the last two years, we've talked about it. Uh, one of my public boards is Blackstone. We have an exceptional set of leaders, of course, Steve Schwartzman and John Gray, our president. And what we reflect upon is for the incoming analysts, associates, there isn't the sense of culture that existed pre-COVID. And so it's up to leadership teams now to really instill uh, the cultural values of the institution. And some of that is much easier in person. On the other end of the spectrum though, I'm not a believer that we're going five days a week back into the office. Uh, it just is not what the most talented individuals necessarily want to do. So we are in a world, uh, you know it, I see it in the startups, we're in a hybrid world forever, and that's a good thing. Agreed. Well, I'm going to think about some uh, questions here from the audience, but one is from Scott Henderson, and the question is, knowing how many millionaires Dell created, uh, how do you think about what are the next steps that would make a lot of sense for today's founders to take to make sure that they're creating wealth for the core team? I would add, though, in addition to that, so many of the Dell alumni also are remarkable philanthropists. And so, again, how do you take steps to ensure there's wealth for the core team but that that wealth will also be invested in social impact and nonprofit enterprises as well. Yeah, well, you kind of start with 
the, the things that you're responsible for. And so, you know, if you've got a company, you know, create a culture of giving back, right? And, you know, there's lots of ways you can do that. It doesn't have to be just money, right? It, it, could, be, it could be volunteering time and, and, and uh, involvement in the community. You can have, you know, matching programs and, you know, people uh, learn by what they see. Right. And so you can create that culture. And and and, uh, you know, I think I think uh, a lot of new companies have have succeeded because they've created this culture of ownership and they've given people uh, a stake in the action. Right. And, and they're they're they, they, they you know, they've got they've got a they've got a fairly big incentive you know, for the new venture to succeed. And, and let's face it, you know, not all these ventures succeed. There's risk involved, um, but yeah, um, you know, I think I think the way the way that extends beyond the core team is you have ownership beyond the core team, and and uh, you know as as broadly as you as you can reasonably do. Now it is fascinating to me still, in a number of cases where I'm speaking with other investors. Uh, they will mention, well, we think only the top 10% of senior management should be getting stock options or stock. And one thing I've learned, 100% of the team should have equity compensation tied to the success of the company. Simple as that. And the other piece I've learned is has to be long-term compensation. Uh, you know that as well as anyone. It's remarkable how the compounding effect works. And if one takes a five to 10 year retention strategy and we want our employees and stakeholders to do well, there has to be that view that this is a seven to 10 year ride at least. Yeah, and sometimes you're, you're kind of forcing them to think long term, right? <laughs> as because of the nature of the incentives, but but uh, if if it works well, then you know they'll they'll thank you for it. Yeah. Uh, so one thing I want to touch on, uh, because I know there are a number of questions that have come to me prior to this discussion. Web 3.0, the metaverse, huge theme for many of you in the audience here at South by. And do you feel, from where you sit? that the metaverse and web 3.0 is overhyped? Uh, or do you think there's something fundamental happening given your pattern recognition and you would encourage a lot of our metaverse entrepreneurs, seed investors in the audience to be thinking, again, long-term and that it's very fundamental? Yeah, uh, web 3, I don't think is overhyped. Um, certainly, there could be some instances <laughs> right. of overhyping. But, but I, I, think, I think the distributed future is real and that has enormous amounts of promise. You know, Metaverse has many different definitions. If it's the, uh, you know, VR headset, uh, eh, you know, kind of the first day you get it, that's pretty cool. Second day, you know, 
then it goes in the drawer, right? After a while. <laughs> Unless I, I there's I a very know. compelling game or mutual experience. Yeah. There are, yeah. There are some on Oculus and others where yeah. they are very compelling. How, how many persistent VR users do we have out there in the audience? Okay, couple. <laughs> Five, including Jim. <laughs> Maybe it was four. I don't know. But, but yeah. So, um, look, I think the potential is enormous. And, and uh, as, you, as you get more computational power and better graphics, um, you know, as, as it becomes photorealistic, you won't be able to distinguish it from reality. And actually, things in, in VR and AR will be as interesting and valuable to you as real things, okay? Now, I, for one, don't want to walk around all day long with a, with a headset on. Uh, I like to go outside, enjoy nature. So, so I... I, I I don't, I don't exactly know what that future looks like. Um, and I think for training applications, uh, you know, the, the, the application of, of AR is, is uh, we, we've already seen that in, you know, a B2B setting. But yeah, Web3 web is, is super interesting. And I think we're going to be in for a much more decentralized future. Uh, in 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 kind of many many domains, I think that's right. And again, coming back to crypto, DeFi, some of the themes that we're investing in and seeing at Briar Capital. Again, we're just at the beginning. I couldn't agree more. The world, I'm hopeful, and I'm optimistic, uh, and we're investing aggressively in this theme that in areas like finance, it will be a much more decentralized world. And, and, and beyond finance, Jim, where do you see crypto and Web3 having, you know, kind of uh, mega impact? Well, one thing I never got right, back in the early days, 99, 2000, of what was then the internet boom, um, I did feel that internet technologies would enable journalists, creators, musicians to take far more economic interest and get paid mm -hmm. through what they're creating. And it didn't happen then. Uh, I got very lucky. I uh, made a wonderful investment in 2011 and Daniel Ek and Spotify, but that is a platform for sure. And I think with DeFi- You also invested in Etsy. And I invested in which Etsy. Which was sort of- Same idea. In, in that same theme, yeah. Well, I have one quick funny story on, on Etsy now that you remind me, and that is, um, and it gets to a, a theme you and I are passionate about, which is empowering women and underrepresented minorities in the world of technology. Uh, to be leaders and to succeed. So Etsy, as many of you know, in the early days was 90% female buyers, 90% female sellers. And there were investors and board members who said, we have to get more guys. We can't build a big business around that. And so I was at a Microsoft dinner in Seattle 
in 2010, there was a pretty good e-commerce CEO founder by the name of Jeff Bezos, who was seated next to me. And I told him this, and he said, you're absolutely crazy. We would buy Etsy in a heartbeat to have 90% female buyers, sellers, that community uh, is extraordinarily valuable. And so, you know, it didn't take much to, on the next round of financing, Briar Capital leaned heavily in uh, at Etsy. So that's one Etsy story. Uh, now, and there are countless examples where Michael has offered a perspective, and again, there are some opinions that really matter. Uh, I think with DeFi and the arts and media, uh, I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with the head of partnerships at Instagram. And Instagram has built a phenomenal business in the world of galleries and art museums and musicians, we all know, creators. And I think there's an understanding now to win big, whether it's Instagram or whether it's DeFi, we need our filmmakers, we need our producers, we need our journalists to get the ability to get a micropayment for their work. And as I said, I was way too early, way back when, but part of what we're investing in blockchain and Web 3.0 is tools that will allow uh, so many of the great creators to get paid directly and not have to go through four or five middlemen where that final piece is really low. Yeah. And so we'll talk in 10 years again and we'll see how that has worked out. Yeah, Web, web 3 uh, you know, kind of enabling that whole creator economy. And you know, if you think about Substack as one example, I mean, you see a, a kind of a real revolution going on in how you know people that have point of views and opinions and thoughts are you know able to reach their audiences. Yeah. Uh, coming back to then female founders, I see there are a number of questions and people have asked about female leadership. Uh, one thing we have not done well by a long shot is recruit and enable female leaders to emerge in the quantities that they should. My mom, who's no longer with us, was a genius mathematician. And I've always been struck with how few female leaders there are in the technology business. And boy, I did a couple things right in, in Facebook, but certainly one of them was to really actively recruit Cheryl uh, to be the COO in 2008. And we'd get together every two weeks, and Cheryl and I have talked about it often. Uh, it was a very difficult time in Facebook. And so we'd get together every two weeks in Palo Alto, and she'd ask how I'm doing. And I'd say, Cheryl, you tell me how you're doing. If you're doing well, I'm doing well. If you're not doing well, uh, let's figure out what we can do. And there is an emergence here. There's Julia at Everly Health and others that are really knocking it out of the park. What can we do collectively, whether it's our great large companies or venture capitalists, to enable more female entrepreneurs, female leaders, and underrepresented minorities? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot we can do. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, one, we can you know uh, invite them to our our boards that we're on, right? And you know, there's been some progress there. I think you know uh, organizations you know can ex- be very explicit about making themselves inclusive workplaces for for all, right? And uh, they can go further with with setting goals and being very transparent about their progress. I mean, we've created these 20, 30 moonshot goals to have half of our workforce be female and 40% of our people leaders be female. And every year we publish our progress. Well, a wonderful note uh, to end on. And Michael, again, this is a privilege in many ways for me. Uh, I loved the conversation we had on many of these topics at your home here a couple months ago, and I can't wait. There are a number of questions about what is next for Michael Dell, uh, and that is to be discussed at a later time. But thank you, Michael. Thank you all for attending, and really appreciate it. Thank you.